Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hey friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We, as always, are your hosts. I'm Ian, and we have Megan and Emily joining us today for our discussion of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. We're doing books three and four today, and the, the, the overwhelming thought passing through my mind right now is how on earth have the two of you made it this far without breaking into song? <laughs> I'm so impressed. I think that I did last time. Yeah, did you, you? Did. Well, right in the moment where Jean Valjean, I take like, it back. you know, the who am I situation is definitely running on in my head these days. <laughs> Two, four, six, one. There it is. Wow. Brilliant. Emily. Yeah, reaching for the high note. You're welcome. Tone. That was beautiful. That was free. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, though, like as compared to the musical, how and this is before we dive into our section for the day. How is this holding up or how does the musical hold up? Well, I, how does the musical hold up? I guess is the question. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So Ian knows that last night I was trying to fall asleep and I started watching the musical. Like one does <laughs> with Les Mis. I thought that w- that would help me fall asleep. I was going to say, it's not exactly <laughs> like a bedtime story. No, it's not exactly calm. But uh, I had the conscious thought while I was watching it that like, I know people who, the, the rare person who read the book first and then saw the musical. Oh, right. And their comment is always, yeah, the musical, it's kind of flat. It doesn't, like, that's not really the story. Hmm. And they poo-poo it. And, like, as a lover of the musical, you know, you get up in arms and righteous about it. But I, as I was watching the musical, I, I saw where they were coming from. Like, oh, like, in five minutes, we've skirted over 100 pages. Right. And there's so much more going on here. And you can tell, at least, so I was watching the Hugh Jackman musical uh, production and you can tell that the director knew the story not just the musical but like the actual text that he's making homages to the right things yeah so here's a funny detail so in the text the word for prisoner or convict that Jean Valjean is is a little it's more it's a little bit more like a galley slave that's also an incorrect interpretation of it but that's one of them that you'll see when you're reading the book and of course that makes you think of like the actual stage musical the guys rowing the, um rowing the boat but by the time that Jean Valjean was a convict those galleys were out of commission they were not actually, there was no reason for these prisoners to be rowing a boat. So the musical gets that wrong. In the movie version of the musical, they're a little closer to being correct mm. because they're having him haul. They used the galleys as living quarters for right. the convicts. So the, it makes sense that he would be hauling one in, like docking hauling it. A ship that in. makes a, a little more sense. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Cool. Interesting misinterpretation on the musical's part. But Emily, you and I were talking about the fact that there's no getting around the music 
breaking as Jean Valjean throws the ripped up pieces of his uh, yellow paper yellow into the ticket sky. Of leave. Yeah, it all yeah. it all begins right in that moment where he he lets it fly over the the cliffside, and the musical did nail that moment for sure. Yeah, I still cried at that moment for Me sure. Too. <laughs> Last night when I was trying to calm myself to go to bed. Yeah, Emily's like, what I need to go to sleep is some blood stirring music. Some trumpets. I need trumpets as I go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's dive into our section for today. Book three opens with a chapter that I I think both of you are eager to characterize. (laughs) It's called In the Year 1817. I think this was worse than anything that we read in War and Peace. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Didn't it feel like a guy was writing a Wikipedia article and kept getting distracted? It was like, squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) By the end of this passage, I thought, this is a Wikipedia page about France in 1817. And I think the Wikipedia page would be better. I think I'm going to go read that. (laughs) I think I'm going to go read that instead. I mean, it isn't that there aren't any lines that are important, but it did make me feel like, and this is a question I had for the two of you, it feels like I'm reading two different authors. Because on this this historical side of things, characterizing the setting and the you know the the place in time where this happens, he's flowery and romantic, and he he goes into great detail and great length, and then we get to an important plot point, and it's like bam, 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 and it's over, and you're like, whoa, that was I feel like I got some whiplash as a reader here. What do you guys think's happening there? Well, I have all kinds of thoughts about what's going on in this section, but the first thing that comes to mind is that I was wondering if in his style he was imitating like Felix and the French academics and it was trying to come across a little stuffy for reasons that I'm sure we'll unpack over the course of the episode. But I wonder if he's intentionally changing his style here. Interesting. I love that. For me, it did recall the more onerous passages of Tolstoy and the fact that all of the relational the interesting relational significant moments come after long passages of dithering, what felt like dithering. And that, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Tolstoy, I I meant that. (laughs) But it did build a sense of tension. Like you were excited to to hear what would actually be the pith of the big long scene. Maybe, Hmm. maybe Hugo's going to do that too. I don't know. Well, it certainly seems like he has in this, in this passage. I want to draw our attention to the very end where he, it's almost like he knows he's doing this to us, right? He says, such was the confused mass of the now forgotten events that floated like flotsam on the surface of the year 1817. History ignores almost all these minutiae. It cannot do otherwise. It is under the dominion of infinity. Nonetheless, these details, which are incorrectly termed little, there being neither little facts in humanity nor little leaves in vegetation, are useful. It is the features of the years that makes up the face of the century. So, Shad, I'm going to apologize in advance for saying this is a philosophy of history. What do we think of it? (laughs) You have to explain that comment. (laughs) Oh, yeah. For those of you who just joined us for this book, we use the phrase philosophy of history about Tolstoy's War and Peace, which is, in its stated aim, a philosophy of history, probably conservatively a million times. And uh, in roasting us after the season was over, Shad assured us that if he ever had to hear that phrase again, he was going to jump into the Grand Canyon. <laughs> That's our, our audio editor. <laughs> so Shad, please don't jump into the Grand Canyon. <clears throat> but on this little section, you guys, do you think this is a good enough defense for the kind of dithering that he's doing, Megan? I don't know. I think I'll have to watch and see. 
<laughs> I don't like floating up in the jetsam. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like to float in the jetsam. But you were the one who said before that one of the things he's doing with this novel is characterizing a century for us. Yeah, absolutely. Giving us like the, I don't know, the texture of the century or the flavor of the century as he sees it and then trying to take up its part and give us a, right. a reading of it. I'm not sure what he has to say about it yet, but I think this this particular chapter felt very much like him giving us our our surroundings, giving us a circumstance. In this yeah. cultural moment with all of these important people doing their thing, I'm going to tell you something significant now. And it felt was, to me like he wasn't he wasn't telling us what was significant in this chapter. He was giving us the lay of the land and maybe the significance will come in a moment. I don't know. What do you think about that? I was wondering when I was reading it whether or not if I were French and like had spent my life studying French history because it was my home country, that this would all make a little more sense to me. Like I, maybe I would be able to follow the names a little better. But I actually suspect that that might not be true, that this is supposed to be a bunch of flotsam and jetsam that is completely insignificant to us. And I think we're supposed to be a little overwhelmed and feel like we're drowning in it because it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Mm. I think that was the point. And I think that's even structured in this chapter when after Ian, you read the conclusion, but you left out the last line. He ends that by saying, in this year, 1817, four young Parisians had a good laugh on four others. Right. The end of the chapter. So after just pages and pages of dry as dust, historical detail, he's telling us all the things that Paris was concerned about or France was concerned about in the year 1817. To them, right. these were the most important things going on in that year. And then he ends it by saying, by the way, there was this other thing going on that year. And he's about to tell us the story of Fantine. That was this extremely tragic human story that took place. And this does not make it huh. in the annals of history when maybe it should have, maybe this was yeah. actually the most important thing going on. And he yeah. does that in the way he structures this whole section that we read for today. He is always kind of burying the lead in that way. He's telling us all the surface level stuff, all the stuff that people would notice. And then he just at the end packs in the punch by saying, Oh, and by the way, you know, obviously the one I'm thinking of is he withholds the detail that Fantine had Felix's child until right. the very end. So, so by the way, Cosette exists. Mm. And right. I love maybe that. Maybe that should color our interpretation of everything else. I think so too. I, I love that reading. It made me read the conclusion that Ian read aloud again with an eye to humanity, the little details of humanity or personal interaction being being the significance that Hugo's going to try and suss out in every circumstance. He even, yeah. in trying to give us the texture of the century, he personifies it, actually. He says these little facts, which are incorrectly termed little, there being neither little facts in humanity nor little leaves in vegetation, are useful. It's the features of the years that makes up the face of the century. So he's looking for a face, a, a human face in all of the flotsam and jetsam. Yep. Yeah, I like that. I, it makes me think too, back a few sections when he was talking about whether Valjean is culpable for his situation or whether he's been put upon by a corrupt society. And he waffles a little bit, right? He has Valjean himself claiming responsibility and seeing the wickedness in his own soul. But as an author, he takes a step backwards and says, it is a... Uh, justice-obsessed society that oppresses its people. And there's a little bit of 
of determinism present in his portrayal of Valjean. Like this, this was always going to be the outcome of a world that operates this way and a society that values these things on the little guy. And in this section, when he uses that metaphor of, of little leaves on vegetation, what do leaves do? Well, they're the key to the health of the plant, right? They're collecting the necessary Mm -hmm. ingredients for life. And that's true of a society as well. Um, all of the people inside of it, including the small and, and not very noteworthy ones, contribute to its health. And so I think by by giving us that metaphor, he's going to point out the ill health of the society, and he's going to use these poignant tales of forgotten people to do it. I love that. I love that. That's a great image. Just among the things that he tells us in this first chapter, a couple of them, I think, illustrate this point. The ones that I was actually able to understand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For example, the fact that all the people of common sense agreed that the era of revolutions had been closed forever by King Louis XVIII, dubbed the immortal author of the charter. So they're saying revolutions, they're right out, no longer in fashion. That was the revolution to end all revolutions. We're done with that. And of course, this book is about a revolution of sorts. It is. Yeah. And so the the fact that... And another instance of their being blind to what actually matters here. Yeah, and that's that's that statement when revolutions are out is said in sharp contrast to things that we, the modern readers, know changed the face of the world and were considered unimportant, like the steam engine, for example. Yeah, yeah. Right. He gives this one paragraph on the steam engine, and the attitude of Parisians towards it is, eh, this is a passing fancy. It's not going to change anything. Uh, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. So, yeah, I think you're right. There are some details strewn among the flotsam and the jetsam that that give us a little insight. So on to Fontaine, then, maybe. I don't want to. It's sad. (laughs) It's really sad. It is. I think that Felix, see his last name, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Ptolemies? Yeah. I think so. I think that the little accent gauche over the E means that you should pronounce the E, Tolomies, like that. Oh, that sounds more French. That sounds right. Well, anyway, this guy, I think, is one of the worst villains in literature. Yes. Great episode, guys. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you all next time. Mic drop. <laughs> I mean, what is there to say? Like, we can dive into individual... There's some of the prettiest writing in this section. Yeah. The way he typifies youth, he calls it the April, the, the charming April of life we call 20... Right. It's just beautiful. And I love the way he describes all of these scenes. Yeah. But this is one of those plot moments that feels, in contrast to his long descriptions of the history, it feels too short. It feels like we didn't dwell long enough. It, it's abrupt and harsh. And maybe that's part of the point is that this, the way these young men treat these girls is abrupt and harsh. And they're, they're using them mm-hmm. in sort of a, uh, in, in a way where they're not even trying to hide it, right? It puts me mm. in mind of that passage about traitors, which is above the one we just discussed, where they're going about in public being traitors and no one even feels the need to hide it anymore. So this is how complacent mm. all of the Parisians have become. That's true of these young men as well. They're, they are naked in their attempts to get what they want and move on with no responsibility. Yeah. Which may be another trapping of youth, like you were saying, Ian. The whole description at least at the beginning of, of this chapter, felt merry and superfluous and flirtatious and everything mm. about Hugo's writing style took on the voice of the men. 
And their perspective on these women was shallow and merry and self-gratifying. And the women too sound shallow and merry and self-gratifying, all except Fontaine, who we get a very clear description of her from the beginning of her life. Like the picture of her as a, a child wandering in the streets without a name. He says her name came to her like water from the clouds on her forehead when it rained. I couldn't help but remember what we had talked about last time with Jean Valjean's interaction with nature being that he couldn't get away from the rain. There was no God to keep the rain off of him. And here we have Fontaine receiving her name like rain from the skies. And I, it yeah. felt like there was a connection. That's yeah, great. she is She is kind of a picture-perfect angel marred only by her stupidity and trusting Felix. <laughs> well, that's it's brutal. <laughs> a little bit. It's true, though. I mean, it, and it, we need this. We need a tragedy to kick this thing off. I can tell we need a tragedy to kick this thing off. And so it it's did. appropriate, maybe. Well, it felt like a fairy tale. I mean, even down to the moment where she's described as having a dowry of golden pearls, but the gold was on her head and the pearls were in her mouth. I mean, he is very hyper-focused on her teeth, <laughs> which I think yeah, yeah. is kind of He's into compliment. the teeth, man. But it does sound like the beginning or the setup of a fairy tale with Cinderella being so, so beautiful and so, so perfect. And she has gold on her head and her wealth is really in her heart. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. her wealth is inside. Except the interesting thing about Fontaine is he, he tells us a couple times. He says she was virginal, right? Uh, although yeah. she would have refused nothing to Ptolemaeus. Ptolemaeus? Uh, uh, you said maybe? it already gone Ptolemies. although she would have, <laughs> I'm immediately going to forget it although she would have refused nothing to Ptolemy <laughs> see I did I did let's just Americanize it I really did. I got say there it. and then it's I Ptolemyus Ptolemyus <laughs> anyway she would have given him anything as could all too clearly be seen her face in repose was supremely virginal a kind of serious, almost austere dignity suddenly possessed it at times, and nothing could be stranger or more disquieting than to see gaiety vanish and reflection instantly succeed delight. Anyway, she's yeah. he's drawing this contrast between what she's done, bear Felix's child, and yet he's he keeps claiming over and over again that she's a virgin of sorts. Well, and there's a line on the the very first page too where he's describing all four of the girls. And he says, in their souls, that flower of purity, which in woman survives the first fall, which I think is an interesting line. He sort of discounts the fact that they're in this situation to begin with in an effort to maintain the fact that they're still being wronged by these oh, yeah. young men. Yeah. Right. That's definitely the focus. Although we do get that moment. Is it favorite or Zephine? who we, she breaks out of character for a second and says, oh, I yeah, I hate this what guy. I yeah. love yeah. this boy across the street from me. Yeah. He's really great. I think we're going to get married, you know, and he, she knows exactly what's going on, which is a contrast to Fantine, who's duped by Felix. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It seems like the other three girls know the soup they're swimming in and they're perfectly comfortable in it in a way that Fantine is not. Well, they seem much more worldly than Fontaine, which may be the, the reason that he keeps coming back to that word virginal. It's not mm -hmm. quite literally that she is a virgin. It's that she's got a an unspoiled perspective on love in particular. She's only ever loved one man so far. And that cannot be said for any of the other three. 
Right. And the, the way he talks about the other three in that context is to bring the society back in again. He says poverty and coquetry are fatal counselors. The one scolds, the other flatters, and the beautiful daughters of the people have both of them whispering in their ears, one on each side. Their ill-guarded souls listen, thence their fall and the stones that are cast at them. Wow. Which is a pretty great line. Mm-hmm. That's good sure writing for sure. That any better. Mm-hmm. While we're noticing little little bone mows, I could not get this line out of my head. He's describing, what's his name? Ptolemies. And he says that he was bald and ironic. Could the word iron be at the root from which irony is derived? It seems to quantify this entire circumstance so very well. That these these boys, in an attempt to be merry, merry, always merry, and make fun of the the situation, it's brutal. There's an iron at the heart of it. And there's a cruelty in this, in their nature that makes this entire situation happen. Yep. Yeah, that reminds me when you were talking about them being youthful, I was put in mind of the fact that actually Felix is 30 years old. Yeah. That he, he's set he's apart balding. from, he's balding. Yeah, the others are kind of given a pass for their first flowering of youth, mm-hmm. but he is, he's old enough to know better, you know? Yeah. Well, and the scheme is all his idea. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a yucky. villain. He's an absolute villain. It, all the film adaptations that I have seen, well, if he's in them at all, <laughs> the he's <one>. beautiful. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's kind of a departure. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. He was not described as beautiful. Victor no, Hugo, no. I mean, he paints him as a disgusting figure. <laughs> Super duper old and lecherous. And Fontaine is like young and youthful and she's the most virginal of everyone. And he's the grandpa of the group. Gross. <laughs> okay, let's look. 30 is not that old. <laughs> you know, it's not that 30 is old. It's that the description Hugo gives of him is old. Like he talks about his hair falling out and his teeth falling out and... You know, yeah, he's falling apart, man. It's true. One wonders how much his romantic sensibility as an author plays into that, though. We're going to paint the villains as impossibly villainous, and we're going to paint the good guys as impossibly good. Right. So it's it's romanticism again. I think so. Yeah. I mean, on chapter chapter three, four for four, on that first page, it says. They were delirious with joy. Now and then they would playfully cuff the young men's ears. Intoxications of life's morning, enchanted years, the wing of the dragonfly trembles. Oh, reader, whoever you may be, do you have such memories? I mean, come on, dude. Could we? Oh, wow. Let's I, tone it down just I a hair. I love till now, Ian. <laughs> what a great reading. Have you walked in the underbrush, pushing aside branches for the charming head behind you? Why, yes, Victor. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, So I wanted to ask in the discussion of Fantine and her susceptibility to love, he says at the end of chapter three, love is a fault, be it so. Fantine was innocence floating upon the surface of this fault. Mm -hmm. So clearly, I mean, this is a story about love triumphing triumphing over um i panicked i was unsure (laughs) if i said the word triumphing right (laughs) you nailed it you nailed it this is a story about love triumphing over (laughs) over which uh well probably justice right we'd spent at length we talked last time about god being more than just why because god loves and so here fontaine's sin 
comes out of love, according to Hugo. And kind of, I think what he's saying is, if love is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> I mean, discuss. What do you guys? What do you guys think of that judgment? Mm, I don't know. I mean, we're not given to understand that Fontaine's love for for Tholomaeus is anything <laughs> is anything oh, <laughs> is anything but but true, right? She actually loves him, and maybe we, the readers, can say she's being duped. Well, except we can't, because one of the things that Hugo keeps saying is that she, of all of them, is wise. Over and over again, it's not just that she's young and innocent and therefore naive. He continues to beat us with the fact that she's she's wise. She ha- she's perceptive. There's something in the quality that she has that makes her, I don't know, intelligent. You know, it's not well, like I, she's so, stupid. I, we're not supposed to do this with authors generally, I don't think, at least not until they finish their sentences. But nuh-uh. Nuh-uh, she's right. not. No, it doesn't This is as obvious all. a scenario as the day is long. Right. So I wonder what he means by that word then. Right. Yeah, Does it that's mean a good that question. You're perceiving a deeper truth? Does it mean that love is worth suffering for, no matter what? Mm-hmm. What is he trying to that's say? Interesting. Yeah. That that is an interesting. Well, thought. and clearly, her child is worth it. Right. right. I mean, the product of this, even if he wasn't taking it seriously, was a new perfect little human being. So maybe, yeah, maybe the love is maybe it's love as an ideal is worth suffering for, and love for her child is the result, and that's worthy. And we're going to go in that direction. Maybe it's not the love for Ptolemies that we're supposed to emphasize here because there also are a lot of ancient analogies made here. Not analogies. What's the word I'm looking for? Like like illusions. illusions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. On page 124, she is compared to Galatea, the flight of Galatea. And I looked that up because I didn't know who Galatea was. And there are two instances or two stories about that character. One is a statue created by Pygmalion. And she's so beautiful. She's like the essence of beauty. And Pygmalion loves his creation so much that he falls in love with her and he would die for love of her, except that the gods made her real so that they could actually be in love. So that feels like Fontaine's, you know, the the ideal of womanhood that Hugo's playing with. The Galatea reference uh, ties in all of her beauty. But the other instance is that Galatea is a Nereid pursued by a cyclops named uh, Polyphemus or Polyphemus. I don't know how to pronounce it, mm-hmm. but he's this horrible creature and he's pursuing her and she's running away. And it's like the virgin being chased by, by a devil basically, who's going to mm. try and mm. get her. And that also right. seems relevant yeah. given that that is much more like this love that we see from Ptolemies. He seems well, vicious, predatory. Pre- vicious yeah. and predatory. Yeah. Yeah. And the other boys uncaring, maybe flighty and, and unserious, but Tholomaeus really appears to be doing this on purpose. And he gives us a, a philosophical... He lectures on it yeah, at length. He lectures yeah. on it at length. I mean, it's, it's like he's out to ruin innocence because innocence deserves ruining or something. A cat. A bounder, like, I say. This is probably... I don't know if this is what Hugo is doing on purpose, but it does seem like if we're going to make these characters literary genres, Tholomaeus' is realism... And Fontaine is romanticism. And the one is out to get the other, you know? like. Well, yeah. And, and also mm-hmm. the society is realism too. Because here's the thing. We get to the end of, of their day, right? Where they're going to go to dinner. And Fontaine, with that wisdom of hers, says, what is the surprise? I want to see the surprise. And Ptolemyus says, um, patience. And then Hugo takes a step back and says, okay, let's go back to what's going on in society here. 
and basically says, here's what everybody thinks of the commoner in this era, that he is a dependable riffraff, that he is complacent, that he is firmly under the thumb of the ruling elite, and no one needs to worry about anything the era of revolutions is over. And then he says, they're wrong about that, because a guy can only take so much. And here's the thing about Frenchmen, especially Parisians, if you tell them they can't do something, they'll do it anyway. And the smallest, wimpiest, skinniest guy in the room, if you give him a pike, will turn into a leader of armies and, and throw you down, right? So that a man can stand up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Megan and I are teaching Johnny Tremaine next week. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and he uses a bunch of allusions to do it, but basically he says, so with all... Um, so with all tyrannical governments, eventually the people are going to rise up here. And then we dive back into the narrative. So it's really clear that Ptolemaeus and his buddies are representative of this bloated system. Yeah. And Fontaine, at least, if not the other girls, Fontaine is is the person being trampled underfoot that has more strength than anyone knows that will eventually rise up and, and take up arms and do something well, about yeah, it. Yeah, the way that he describes what happens in her heart is very reminiscent of Jean Valjean. She, a woman says to her something like, uh, these little ones, nobody thinks about them or whatever, talking about Cosette. And she says, yeah, that's the way Felix thought about this child. And then it says, let's see, I'm not sure if I can find it on the fly, but let's see here. Yep, here we go. Uh, so 147. Do people ever take such children seriously? They only shrug their shoulders at them. Then she thought of Ptolemaeus, who shrugged his shoulders at his child, and who did not take this innocent creature seriously, yeah. and her heart turned dark at the place that had been his. So the place that had been reserved for love is soured, right? The innocence is soured and turned to hatred and bitterness, just like Jean Valjean in prison, right? His yep. love for his nieces and nephews is is turned into a source of bitterness and hatred and darkness for him. Yeah. It seems really clear that Ptolemaeus is representative of a worldview. His lectures make it so, right? And I do think it's realism, Megan. I think you're right. I think it's absolutely realism. Because he says directly to her, Fontaine, I am a vision or I am a, a phantom. I'm an ideal. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. And you've right. got to let me go because I'm not real. You know, like love is, love is false. Love is an illusion. <laughs> Let me go well, do my actual wastrel thing. His thing is to reduce love to an appetite. Mm -hmm. There's this long section where he compares it to an apple turnover. And yeah. he says, indigestion is charged by God with enforcing morality on the stomach. And remember this, each of our passions, even love, has a stomach that must not be overloaded. We must in all things write the word finis in time. We must restrain ourselves. When it becomes urgent, draw the bolt on the appetite. Play a fantasia on the violin. Then... Break the strings with our own hand. So casting a, the ending of, an, of a love affair as, as some sort of hyper-realistic self-discipline. Methinks he protests a little much here. Well, and our conversation about love and whether Fontaine is wise to love, he, he tries to redefine love on the next page. He says, gentle love was made to rove gaily. It has been said to err is human. I say to err is loving. Ladies, I idolize you all. So love is is abandonment, is whatever I want it to be, and has no consequences. Love is, you know, love is erring. You spoke just now of my name, he says. It moved me, but whatever we do, let us not trust names. They may be deceitful. I'm called Felix, but I'm not happy. Words deceive. 
That is really interesting, given the importance of names mm -hmm. in this book, which that was one of the other things I wanted to talk about. Maybe that that section compared to this little detail that we're given that doesn't seem to, it's very strange. On page 150, we're told that the little girl's name, Fontaine's little girl, is Cosette. And then it says, for Cosette, read Euphrasy. The name of the little one was <laughs> Euphrasy. But the mother Bless had made Cosette out of it. <laughs> or maybe bless you. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> bless you. Uh, You're crazy. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> so tight. Uh, the mother had made Cosette out of it by that sweet and charming instinct of mothers and of the people who change Josepha into Pepita and Francois into Silette. It is a kind of der derivation that confuses and disconcerts the entire science of etymology. We knew a grandmother who succeeded in changing Theodore into non. What? <laughs> Excuse me, what? As so, the preeminent nicknamer in our family, I understand this. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it seems to be connected to Felix saying, do not trust names. Names are deceitful. Words deceive. I am called Felix, but I am not happy. What do you think he's doing there? Hugo, I mean. I don't know. I hadn't noticed this, to be honest. Well, I think what I think about it is a stretch. It could be connected to that conversation about love and Fontaine, her love and the wisdom of her love not being in reference to her love for Ptolemies. He is not the object of her, her faithful love, really. She idolizes this concept of, of um, true love and faithfulness. And maybe that's worked out between her and another character, that he is not the source of the happiness that she thinks is associated with love. He is not happy himself and he can't make her happy either. He's misnamed in the story. Hmm. Right. It makes me think of Jean Valjean, who, where we left him, has decided that he's going to reclaim his name, right? He's no longer prisoner 24601. He's now Jean Valjean. And he's going to he's turn. Gonna, he's going to prance into every room saying, ha ha, it is I. <laughs> Voila, it is I. <laughs> <laughs> but a little bit, like, actually, he's going to do that. He's going to try to, to, he's going to build an identity on his name now. And I wonder if he's going to be susceptible of the same thing that Fontaine is doing with Felix, right? The name Felix. She associates that with a bunch of things that aren't necessarily fundamentally true. Right. So maybe names really are deceitful, but that's that could be a, a bad thing, like it is in this case. But maybe it could also be a good thing if you think about the, if we go back to the bishop who says, your name isn't important. What's important is oh, I like you're my that. brother. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I like that too. Whew, you got a lot out of there that I didn't see, yeah, Emily. Well that. done. By the way, did anyone look up Euphrasy? Because I didn't. But I wonder what it means. Why go to the trouble of calling her Euphrasy? It no. probably is significant, right? <laughs> that is such a good question. While you're looking that up, I want to zoom ahead to book oh. four, to our next section. Go ahead, Emily. Did you find it? I did. It means good cheer. Ah. What does Cosette mean? Isn't that like a flower? Deep sorrow? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, tragedy. Is this like Ruth? Let's see. Cosette means people of victory or little thing. Hmm. There little are no little thing. things. Oh, man. Yeah. That's objectifying. Well, <laughs> I think it's supposed to, like, like the, oh, what Ian was talking thing. about. Yes. Hmm. The little things. 
So the se- that section wraps with the revelation, as Emily pointed out earlier, sort of burying the lead that Cosette has been born. Fantine has Felix's child. And we zoom ahead to book four, where we are introduced to the Tenardiers. <laughs> and it is a spectacularly written scene. I absolutely loved every moment of it. But the image that I want to zoom in on first is the, the two little girls swinging under this carriage, this old piece of, of machinery. And it's got a couple of uses. The ones that he lists here are for hauling logs out of the woods or something, right? It's a big two-wheeled cart. Then you can hook a horse up to it and drag heavy things. Like It's guns. also, though, yes, exactly, yeah. guns. It's a specter of war under which these two little girls are swinging on a giant chain that they have been strapped to by their mother so that they won't fall off, right? I think it's so fascinating, knowing where the story is going with these two little girls. It's so fascinating that the description of their beauty and their innocence and their childlike faith and everything going on and this specter of war hanging over them like a cave and they're strapped to it right and it's a two-wheeled cart not a four-wheeled cart so you can almost envision that their parents are these two wheels and there's a chain swinging between them to which the girls are strapped and, they, mm. and their parents are going to drag them from this innocence down to wherever it is their parents are going and let it, it's safe to say the outlook is not is not great. Hugo doesn't pull any punches in describing these people. He basically says, these are horrible people. These are terrible people. <laughs> right? Yeah, he like he, he classifies them via a whole social class, right? Somewhere between, they're like the worst of the bourgeoisie and the worst of the lower classes all combined. He says there's a whole class of people like this. Yeah. What, what stuck out to you, Megan, about this, this scene? Is Fantine displaying her wisdom again? Well, no, definitely not. I think she sees exactly what she wants to see. And Hugo even says that it's like a, oh, what's the word that he uses? I'm looking for it. It's a magic charm. She said that this image of the the innocence contrasting with this monstrous cart, which he calls Cyclopean. He says that with it, with this chain, Homer could have bound Polyphemus or Shakespeare, <laughs> Caliban. I mean, he doesn't pull any punches yeah. with how dark this this setting is but she doesn't see any of that she only sees the innocence of the children and then she turns and looks at the mother and assumes a long list of things about her by association with her kids she sees exactly what she wants to see it's like a it's like she's dazzled you know when actually every bit of the interaction between her and this mother there are clues all throughout that this woman is horrible she's vicious in the way that she sits there, even the way that she interacts with her kids, she's like, Well, he the, gives us to understand phrase? if she had been standing instead, yeah. Fontaine would have been intimidated. Well, yeah, yes. I was gonna say, How do you reconcile wh- what I agree with you about that there were clues everywhere? And then also, he says, Such things hang on the little thread of fate, right? right? If she had been standing up, then Fontaine would have seen or would have turned away. Well, and also, I don't know. Fontaine is is fond and caressing and sweet. And he says the most ferocious animals are disarmed by caresses to their young. So she acts softer than maybe she's ever been capable of before because of Fontaine's posture towards her own children. So I don't know. Is it all on Fontaine that she didn't see what was happening? I think so. I do. 100%. Uh, But I also think that it isn't this is a different kind of cruelty than, than the cruelty we discovered with Ptolemaeus because she's not aware of it, right? When her husband congratulates her on setting a mousetrap with mm-hmm. her children, she says, and I didn't even know it. 
right? This is the kind of evil that's associated with stupidity, which I think is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. it, he's not just painting one big old, you know, black evil, and and, and every evil character will partake of the same traits. Like there, there are mm-hmm. grades of it. And no. that was part of the preface too, the ignorance of the people, right? Mm-hmm. And she's a, Ma- Madame Thenardier is a great reader of books. They're just the wrong kinds of books. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, and isn't that an element of romanticism too, the nature versus nurture conversation? Do we start out evil or do we just have a tendency that can either be cultivated in us or not? On page 152 in chapter two, he says, the woman was at the heart a brute the man, a blackguard, both in the highest degree capable of that hideous sort of progression that can be made toward evil. There are souls that, crab-like, crawl continually toward darkness, going backward in life rather than advancing, using their experience to increase their deformity, growing continually worse, and becoming steeped more and more thoroughly in an intensifying viciousness. That was the case with this man and this woman. So, so a, a progression of evil, like a sliding scale, and they are animalistic and brutish in their evil nature, rather than like Ptolemies, an educated, chosen kind of evil, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was delighted to find that the scene, though, I mean, do you, I assumed that there is some comic relief to this scene, even though it's very dark. But where uh, she uh, Fantine is negotiating with Madame Thenardier about taking her child, and then all of a sudden, out from the door, we yeah. get, "You'll take ten francs." Right, exactly. <laughs> yep. Well, and it's it's significant that only his voice is a part of that scene because yeah. in the description of the couple, one page past where Megan was reading, Hugo so talks about the aspect of this man mm-hmm. and how there are some people you have only to look at them and you're terrified. You can <laughs> see the evil see oozing out of their pores, but she doesn't ever see him. But yeah. meanwhile, his wife is doing quick time math while he does yes. that, which I think That's is right. so funny. I agree with the comedic effect. She's like, six times seven is 42. Take that. <laughs> you welcome, Monsieur. <laughs> Sit yourself down. This is, I got to say, the, the musical really nailed it. Yeah. These two. Master they, the they're house. great. Yeah. Master of the House is good stuff. <laughs> so at this point, it's just where I can feel a sliding into unremitting darkness. I mean, it's awful. The, we don't get much more about Fantine in this section after she drops her child off. What we do get is an account of how Cosette is treated. And and the the interesting tension between the other girls and Cosette, which he describes as a fault in the mother, obviously, but that it comes from, how would you guys describe that? Like it comes from the fact that if she gives any of the love that she has to Cosette, there will be correspondingly less of it for the other mm. girls that she only had a certain amount of caresses and a certain number of blows to dole out. And so she gave all of the caresses to her own children and all of the blows to Cosette. Yeah, he calls it a dark side of mother love. Yeah, the the idea that that makes love kind of transactional, that there's never enough of it. Yeah. So you have to meet it out accordingly. So we now have two different images of, well, three. We've got the bishop in the kind of love that he represents. We've got Ptolemaeus in the kind of love that he represents and the philosophy of love that he puts forward. And now we've got Madame Thenardier. Yeah, as I think about it, it makes sense that they would represent, like if the bishop represents the law, or not the law, like, like mercy itself. Mercy, yeah. And then 
I'm skipping ahead, but there's going to be a character who represents the law itself. Itself. Yeah. I wonder if the Tenardiers are the economy, right? Money transaction. Mm -hmm. Um, and for them, it's gotta be tit for tat. It's gotta be you. I, I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. It's like an, uh, they, they represent exchange in a way. Yeah. Not free exchange, but exchange. No, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, chicanery is what we got going on here. Oh, good word. And Thank not you. fair either. Like here's Cosette growing up in that circumstance. And he says that she does not understand anything of this world. There's that economy you're talking about. The economy of the world is transactional or of God who may supersede that economy. She doesn't understand either of them. She just knows that those two beside her are living in a halo of glory while all she gets are undeserved blows. Yeah, It's a darker picture of quote Cosette than I think is usually represented. She's kind of a little angry, bitter imp in some yeah. ways because she's been nurtured that way. She's been raised to look darkly on on the whole thing so it even changes <laughs> her her demeanor and her looks on the in the last page of our reading for today he says injustice made her sullen misery made her ugly only her eyes remained beautiful and they were painful to look at because large as they were they seemed to increase the sadness mm, brutal it's very sad it's a real downer of an ending yeah it's only <sighs> getting worse folks for a long yeah. time no, it's true. This is going to be very dark. So I, this is a change of pace, but we have a listener who is living in France Whoa. and uh, has some insights about the French language that I thought were super interesting. Oh my and gosh, I thought so I would, they're, I think they're interesting enough to worth, uh, they're worth sharing. She, well, I'm assuming this listener says that uh, the English version, the uh, location of Muriel's bishopric, is called Digne, but in French that means worthy. So when it says he occupied the bishopric, which can also mean seat of Digne, uh, it would actually be read as he can he sat in the seat of worthiness. Wow. Oh wow, That's I love cool. that. And then in response to the comment I made about wanting to know what the terrible blows that the bishop received that changes his heart over in Europe. Apparently the word is coupe, like a coupe d'etat, but it can be used to mean a punch, a kick, or coup de souffle is a gasp, or a coup de coeur is love at first sight. So it does, the comment says, so to me it has the nuance of something powerful and even violent that happens to a person. I think blows is a good translation. Like a blow to the so heart. I thought, they were, wow, I thought they were, those were two super helpful I love comments. that we are in touch with someone who can give us translation notes. That is super And cool. also, yeah. please, whoever you are, listener, help us with translation <laughs> slash pronunciation. Please, yeah, because please if you don't, us. I'm just going to keep on Americanizing. Well, we are going to do that, that anyway. I'm going to keep on... I'm going to keep on pretending like I'm a guy from the American South with a sixth grade education and saying, Tholomyus. <laughs> and it's going to be funny, but not helpful. <laughs> we are delighted for input. <laughs> yes, please continue sending us such things. Well, thank you both for your insights and thank you listeners for being with us. We love, love, love that there are people along for the ride on this journey through Les Miserables. We do hope that you will get in touch with us on Facebook if you haven't already. There is a group for our podcast discussion, and we are having a blast 
swapping comments back and forth. And I think there's a fair number of memes from the musical that are being circulated. <laughs> if there aren't, let's get on that, folks. Let's get on that. <laughs> Anyways, until next time, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.